right, folks, we'll get started. These 8 a.m. lectures where your desire to sleep wrestles with your desire to learn. So pride yourselves, for you have won. We're going to talk about trauma, one of my favorite topics. We're going to talk about critical care in the trauma patient. I should say I have no conflicts of interest and my entire clinical practice is off-label. The only thing I have to disclose is I do a podcast called MCRIT. And it takes no manufacturer support and has no conflicts of interest either. The other disclosure is that I have a particular bent in trauma that was engendered by the Shock Trauma Center. Um, so if you note any particular prejudices in terms of management, they are to blame. Let's talk about a case. 55-year-old male, attorney during the week, but on weekends, he becomes a warrior when he rides his iron steed. And he was riding, maybe not at his best, and took a turn a little bit too quick and went flying off his bike. And EMS radios in to tell you he was hypotensive in the field and that he smashed up his entire face because he has one of these ridiculous helmets that are basically just protective in name only. So EMS brings him in, they dump him on your gurney. They show you the helmet. Classic trauma patient. And nurses put him on the monitor. He's got a heart rate of 96. BP of 180 over 20. Saturation, 89% on a nasal cannula. Breathing 22 times a minute. His GCS is 14, loses one point because you have to prod him a little, open up his eyes, and he's moving his extremities times four. So what do you think? This guy's fine, right? He's not tachycardic. Blood pressure's obviously okay, no worries, right? Just shift him on over to fast track. So the first thing to talk about is that heart rate of 96. And the American College of Surgeons ATLS course would tell you that, you know, the classes of hemorrhage are directly correlated to the patient's heart rate. And if you're not tachycardic, then you haven't lost that much blood. So the first set of literature to talk about is the fact that that is absolutely untrue. That countless articles have demonstrated that you could be floridly in hemorrhagic shock with a low heart rate, a normal heart rate, or a high heart rate. And basically that number does not do anything good for you. Yes, if they're tacky to 140, I'm more worried, but you can't look at the converse and say, ah, their pulse rate's 84, they're just fine. This is especially an issue in the elderly because they lack the same functional catechol system as a 30-year-old, and therefore they rarely will become profoundly tachycardic until they basically are in the pericode state. So be very careful about using this as a marker of reassurance. So. I've given up on people getting the take-home points absolutely correct, so I just made my own. So if you see these, these are the take-home points from the lecture. So lower normal heart rates are not on their own reassuring in trauma patients. All right. Now, the BP also could send you astray. And it's really the automated BPs that are 
ones you can't necessarily trust right at the beginning. And you notice this guy had 180 over 20. That's so obviously not a real blood pressure. Now what happens is when the patient's in uh, really tight vasoconstriction, the machine has trouble really correlating the right number when you first get that blood pressure. And that's been demonstrated, that the blood pressure by automated and patients in profound shock are not accurate. Now, what we've discovered, and this hasn't been published in the literature yet, but I've noted it on every center I've gone to, so I think it's consistent across the monitors, is after four or five reps, it starts to get more and more accurate. And if you just keep hitting start, what you'll find is that blood pressure will go from 180 over 20 to like 140 over something to eventually where the guy's actually at, which is probably like 80 over 60. And so at the shock trauma center, we just kept recycling. The instant you get a blood pressure, we'd ignore it and hit start again until maybe the fourth or fifth round. And then what it showed is usually very correlated to what we would have in in the initial part of the resuscitation, which is the femoral arterial line. So we began to feel pretty good that the BP does become accurate, just not on its first round, because it's using all these algorithms to try to guess where it should start the systolic, where it should put the diastolic, so that the patient's arm is not being continuously squeezed. But it takes it a few rounds to figure that out and to pick up the signal it's seeing is actually real. And so I would tell you, ignore the initial BP and just keep hitting start for a few times when the patient first comes in, and you're probably going to get a more accurate one. Now, this uh, puts out something else you really have to keep in mind. If that patient is put into a bay where the nurses haven't reset the machine, that rep time on the blood pressure could be 60 minutes. You know, if that patient who was there just before they got there uh, was ready to go up to the floor, they don't want their arm squeezed every two minutes. That rep time may really put you in a bad situation because you see that initial blood pressure, okay, 120 over 82, and then you keep looking up and you keep seeing 120 over 82 because it hasn't taken the blood pressure for the 40 minutes the patient's been there. Even if they do reset the bay, oftentimes the default is set at something like 15 or 30 minute rep times. That's not going to work on a sick trauma patient. So you have to be cognizant to either do it yourself or tell the nurses, set that rep time for two minutes on any actually sick patient that gets put in a resuscitation bay so that when you look up, you're seeing something that's relatively timely in terms of what that patient's actually doing. So don't believe the first few blood pressures in a sick trauma patient and check your rep time. So if you can't trust the initial set of vitals, what can you trust on a potentially sick trauma patient? How many folks have end tidal CO2? Not for intubated patient, but for procedural sedation. All right, great, almost everyone. So putting that on your trauma patient is a very nice marker of how bad off they are. Um, and this seems weird. Why would end tidal CO2, a ventilatory monitor, be helpful on a patient we're worried about shock? And end tidal CO2 is not a ventilatory monitor. It's a monitor of ventilation and perfusion. Because what end tidal is monitoring is how much CO2 you're exhaling and how much CO2 actually gets back to the lungs. And the latter is directly dependent on the patient's perfusion status, on the patient's cardiac output. So if you have a trauma patient, and it's low, it's not because they're hyperventilating due to fear of trauma, it's because the patient's perfusion is crap. And end tidal will correlate with lactate, end tidal will correlate with these patients' decompensation later on. 
So if you look at that number and it's 12, you should be very scared of that patient, even if their vital signs are okay. End-tidal CO2 is a marker of how much CO2 is actually making it all the way around your circulatory system to get back to the lungs to exhale. So directly correlated to your cardiac output. All right, we already have appreciated this guy is potentially sick. How are we gonna go about treating him? Well, thankfully, the paradigm has changed. It's no longer ABC. First in the military, and then it's trickled down to ATLS as well. It's now big C first, and then ABC, meaning deal with the hemorrhage, uh, the hemorrhage and the massive bleeding first before you start engaging in ABC. Because if the patient's exsanguinating into their pelvis, then you spending five minutes to get an airway is not necessarily the best use of your time. So big C first and then ABC. Now, how is this going to play out? Well, the way it plays out for me is to identify any sources of major bleeding right from the moment the patient hits the door. So, you know, there's tons of people who are going to be listening to lungs, checking the patient's airway. Um, so for myself, as trauma team leader or someone who's going to be, you know, calling the shots from the side while one of my fellows leads the trauma, uh, I want to do some things that don't get done initially. So as the patient's rolling in on the gurney, I want to feel the belly because that somehow gets ignored until later on in the trauma uh, flow if you don't do it up front. So I want to know, does that belly feel rigid and distended? And am I going to worry that there's a lot of intraperitoneal bleeding? I want to squeeze the pelvis. And the way to do this has to be uh, really uh, given some thought. You, you don't rock the pelvis, though we were all taught that, I think. You don't squeeze the pelvis out and expand the space in there. You put your hands on the patient's iliac crest and you just push once inwards. If the pelvis moves under your hands, don't let go because bad things will happen. So push inwards, if it moves, hold it there. And we'll talk in just a minute what should happen next. But that's the way you palpate a pelvis is you push once with big force inwards because if it does move under your hands, then what you've just done is what has to happen anyway, which is the pelvis has to be reduced down to a smaller size and then kept there. And then I like to feel the feet because if it's not ice cold outside and the patient has cold extremities, uh, that's a bad situation. That's a patient profoundly vasoconstricted and a patient I'm gonna worry has a source of hemorrhage somewhere in their body. So those are the three things I do every time the patient rolls past me. Now I mentioned, if the pelvis moves under your hands, don't let go. What to do instead of letting go is to have someone help you bind the pelvis. So if you squeeze the pelvis and it moves under your hands, then it needs to be bound. How many folks have one of the commercial pelvic binders in their center? All right, not everyone. It's probably worth it to go home and say we want these. And there's all sorts of ones out there. The one we use is the SAM splint or SAM pelvic binder. I'm forgetting the exact name. And again, I take money from none of these companies. This just turned out to be the easiest. It actually measures the force you're supposed to apply. It makes a little click when you've applied the right amount, which reassures everyone, because the rest of these, you really don't know how much force to apply. And it doesn't get in the way. So that's why we went with this one. Now, supposedly, they say it's like one patient use, but most places, if it's not covered in blood, just wash it off with the same way you wash your blood pressure cuffs and reuse it, because it's not touching anything internal. I'm not sure how I feel about that, but that's, so you can get away with just buying like 
five of these and just rotating them as they get washed. But they're a lot easier than the alternative. The alternative being binding with a sheet, which to my mind probably works fine when done ideally, but I never have seen it done ideally. Um, so it's probably easier to just buy a pelvic binder commercially. They're not that expensive. Now what we know definitively is that any binding of the pelvis is better than what we used to do, which is get orthopedics down there to do an X-fix. And all the orthopods a decade ago were so proud of themselves at the Shock Trauma Center because they could do an X-fix in 15 minutes. Turns out it doesn't do anything. The pelvic binder is better. You're actually reducing the space of the pelvis and there's no reason for early orthopedic intervention. In fact, I will go so far as to say that orthopods have nothing to offer the crashing trauma patient. And yet, when you have a bad pelvic injury, in many places, that's the first call that goes out, is let's get the orthopod down here. They are not gonna fix this patient in any way that is helpful. They will eventually take care of the bones when the patient's stabilized, but there's only two calls that help a bleeding pelvic trauma patient. Trauma surgeon to take that patient to the operating room or interventional radiology to squirt the bleeding arteries. Those are the two calls that will save an exsanguinating pelvic trauma patient. There's nothing the orthopods could do to affect the bleeding except do what you've already done, which is properly bind the pelvis. Now, there's a lot of questions about, well, which pelvic injuries should we bind? Because essentially, pelvic binding only helps anterior, posterior pelvic injuries, right? The open book pelvises that have increased the space to bleed into, as opposed to lateral compression, where you're decreasing the space. And I used to teach that, like only bind the pelvises that feel like they're collapsing under your hands with an open book. And at this point, if you have any sick, blunt trauma patient, my advice and the advice of trauma surgeons far smarter than me, folks like Kenji Inaba, um, Karen Brohe, uh, Tom Scalia, is if you have a sick, blunt trauma patient, just bind the pelvis. And then on the CT scan, you'll figure out which type it is. And if it's not an AP open book, then just take it off. We're of the belief you can't make things worse with a pelvic binder. And if it is an AP injury, you've made it a lot better. So that's my stance on sheeting. Can you make it worse? Uh, the potential is so small, it's not worth thinking about. Just bind the pelvis on any sick, blunt trauma patient. So pelvic binding, early, often. All right, so we did bind this guy's pelvis, and now his blood pressure, 50 over 30. Not so good. So what do we do now? We're going to do four things. Now, I'm going to discuss them sequentially, but in a good trauma, they're all happening simultaneously. Um, I know some of you folks are working in single-doc shops, in which case you've got to take it step by step. You've got no choice. But if you have a friend, and that friend doesn't need to be another doc, it just needs to be anyone savvy with trauma, then it's very good if you could do these things all at once. But we're going to talk about them one by one. So the first thing we're going to do is figure out where that major hemorrhage is, right? So we're going to go from a cavity-based approach. And we're going to figure out where is that bleed. And you guys all know this rule, right? These are the five places sick trauma patients lose their blood volume. And they can lose it into their chest. They can lose it into their intraperitoneal space. They can lose it into the two retroperitoneal spaces that are contiguous, right? So they can lose it into their pelvis or into the area where big red and big blue live, your aorta and IVC, or your kidneys, right? You can lose it into the thigh 
or you lose it on the street from external bleeding. And every time you have a sick trauma patient, you say to yourself, the source of this patient's instability is bleeding, because it always is until proven otherwise, and the five places they could bleed are these five, and you tick them off your list. Now, we already know by the fact that this patient's pelvis had that horrible movement sensation under your hands that he has a retroperitoneal bleed. So that's already up there on the list. But we got to decide about the other four. Now, this patient has no external source of bleeding, so the street is off the list. Now, he is 50 over 30. That is a blood pressure below the critical point where these patients risk cardiac arrest if you don't do something in the next minute or so. So this is not the time to screw around. This is the time to immediately take out the sources of this patient's trauma so that you know exactly what you're left with. So we want to take that chest off that list. Now, you could do a needle decompression, but I find this to be a bad way to go. Needle decompression is fine if you have an x-ray showing a tension pneumothorax, because then you will keep sticking that needle in as far as you need to until you get a rush of air, because you know there's something there for you to find. It's not so good when you're using decompression of the chest as a diagnostic maneuver, because you will keep putting in your angiocath, and then if you don't get anything, two things could be happening. Either the patient has nothing in that chest, or you haven't reached the pleural space yet, and you really have no way of knowing, unless you're going to use like a five-inch needle, in which case you're at risk of really damaging some important structures in the chest. So I think this is not a good way to go, and I don't practice needle decompression ever. Now, what we were taught at the shock trauma center in these patients, 50 over 30, blunt trauma, don't know the source, is just put in empiric chest tubes. So they would just get immediate bilateral chest tubes. And that's fine, but you've got to get the kit, and you've got to you know, have people to do it on either side. Some people would suggest ultrasound, and I am an ultrasound advocate. I use ultrasound in my practice continuously. I don't think ultrasound is a great thing for this patient. Pericode, get the machine, turn it on, have to turn it on again because it's frozen, find the right probe, oh crap, there's no gel. I don't, I don't go for this on this patient. Now, if his BP was 130 over 80, absolutely. Let's scan fast, let's move up to extended fast, let's look at the chest. This guy, I need to know now. And if you need to know now, and you don't want to mess around with a chest tube set, then the move you should be doing is something called the finger thoracostomy. How many folks have ever done a finger thoracostomy? Show of hands. No, it's everyone. Every single person in the room has done it because it's the first part of a chest tube, right? If you throw some betadine on the chest, which does nothing because it has to dry first and we're not going to wait for that, and then make an inch cut and then jam in a hemostat and then touch lung, you've done a finger thoracostomy. And that's the first part of every chest tube. But you could stop there, and that's the beauty of it, is if you do bilateral finger thoracostomies, which take less than 20 seconds, and nothing comes out of either chest, slap on two tegaderms and deal with it later. Because you've taken the chest out of the picture, and you don't need to mess around sticking in a chest tube. You could do that later if you want, or you could just sew up the cut you just made. But the point is, you've taken those chests out. All you've left the patient with is a small cut, and you can move on to the rest of the trauma, especially if you're in a single-doc shop. You get that patient come in, blunt cardiac arrest, just do bilateral finger thoracostomies. Make sure you're not missing attention, and then you could call it if the patient has no heart motion. This is quick, easy, rapid. Here's what it looks like. All right, this is my friend Cliff Reed. Let's see. 
I don't know if anyone put the board to raise the volume here, so I'll just narrate. So he's made a cut about an inch. He's plunging his hemostat in. He's using straight. I use curved. Same thing. And now he's actually stripping some muscle off so it's not going to close up, and then he touches lung. That's it. If anything came out, great. Put a chest tube in. If nothing came out, put on an occlusive dressing. Figure it out later. That, you saw how long that was. That was 15 seconds. That's a finger thoracostomy. You all know how to do it because you know how to do chest tubes. But you don't need the chest tube. You just need to figure out if there's bleeding in the chest. When we did bilateral finger thoracostomies on our patient, 200 mLs of blood on the left, nothing on the right. So we put a chest tube in on the left, put an occlusive dressing on the right. But that 200 mLs, that's not why this patient's hypotensive. So guess what? We're done with the chest. So now we've eliminated the chest. We've eliminated the street. We feel the guy's thighs on both sides. They're nice, soft, not expanding. So it's not the thigh. So we're left with two cavities. We know retroperitoneal, and is it intraperitoneal? And for this, ultrasound still is the move, because nothing's quicker, nothing's cleaner, and you could find an immediate answer, unlike messing around on the chest where, well, is the patient taking a deep enough breath? Are they not? No, this is objectively discernible. So the FAST exam, but it should be FAST, because this guy, if the intraperitoneum is one of the sources of his hemorrhage, it's not going to be a subtle exam. But we also don't want to, you know, have a false negative. So the way to do the fast, in my mind, in a patient like this, is one view of the liver tip with the patient in Trendelenburg. So what does that mean? Not Morrison's. Not Morrison's. Morrison's is not the answer. That's not where fluid goes first. Liver tip. Patient in Trendelenburg. See, this is Morrison's, right? Beautiful interface. Liver, kidney, no, it doesn't project well, but trust me, this is a clean kidney edge all the way down. That's Morrison's. That's a negative right upper quadrant, right? No. Because if you scroll just down a little bit further, there's the liver tip, and there's a pocket of fluid, and there's another pocket of fluid. So put your patient in Trendelenburg and find the tip of the liver. The liver is floating in fluid, even though Morrison's completely negative. So that's what you want to see. Put the patient head down, scan to Morrison's, and then keep sliding down until you see the tip of the liver. If that's clean with the patient in Trendelenburg, I promise you, there's not a huge source of free blood in that belly. You could absolutely finish the left upper quadrant and bladder. I just haven't found them to reveal things that Trendelenburg liver tip has not. So when the fast really matters, right upper quadrant, liver tip, in Trendelenburg is the money. His fast was negative. So we've taken out all the cavities except the retroperitoneum. So we got a single cavity injury here. But unfortunately, it's a cavity that tends to kill patients. Bleeding into the retroperitoneum is bad because it's a virtually infinite space. You could lose your entire blood volume plus all the blood we add in into your retroperitoneum. It is an enormous cavity, and that's the problem. So we got to start replacing the lost blood, and we're going to do that with massive transfusion. So massive transfusion, also known as hemostatic resuscitation. The fluid of trauma is a combination of packed red blood cells and clotting factors. That is really the only fluid you should be giving a sick trauma patient. No crystalloids, nothing that doesn't help the situation. 
PRBCs and clotting factors together are the fluid of trauma. Now, we have literature now. The proper trial was published last year, John Holcomb's work. It evaluated one-to-one versus one-to-two as a ratio of PRBCs to FFP. The other thing that was a big part of this trial was the first product infused were platelets. So if you have a sick trauma patient like our patient, what should you do? Well, you should get the blood and clotting factors to the bedside, and the first product you give should be platelets. Platelets are type agnostic. You give any platelets to anyone, so there's no reason to wait for the patient's type and cross. So that's easy. So this patient, right off the bat, gets a donor pack, which, depending on your hospital, will have five or six units of platelets in it as the first product. And it doesn't go on a rapid infuser, and it doesn't go on a warmer. It's easy. You just stick it in whatever IV. It's not a large volume, and you let it drip in. So when the nurse asks, what should I hang first, tell them on a regular IV to hang platelets. And then, on something warmed and rapid, you should start vacillating between given type O PRBCs, and if your hospital is a trauma center, you should have thawed AB plasma. Now, how many folks have access to thawed plasma? Yeah, very few. If you're a major trauma center, you don't, it's a problem. If you're not a major trauma center, then it's not a problem, because it's very difficult to keep thawed ABCs, uh, thawed AB plasma at a non-trauma center. But if you are a trauma center, you should be demanding this. If you're, if you're at a community shop, then you're going to have to wait until they thaw the FFP. We have to work with what we got. But if you got it, then these two, one PRBC, one FFP, one PRBC, one FFP, is the fluid of trauma. We'll talk in just a second about what your resuscitation goals should be, but that's what you're going to be infusing in this patient, and it should be under pressure so you see the immediate results of your work, and it should be warmed because the coagulopathy of trauma gets worse when we make the patient cold. In an ideal world, these products are actually in the resuscitation bay. So when you're calling the blood bank, what they're doing is replenishing what you've already used because you've already started infusing from the moment the patient hits the door. Now, I think it's obvious that our patient needs these products, needs massive transfusion. This is a sick guy. But what about the ones that are more subtle? How do you know who should get a massive transfusion? You can use the score. And that proper trial I showed, you use the ABC score. And it's just four criteria. They're pretty easy to remember. You don't even need, like, something on your iPhone. Uh, is the patient penetrating or not? Is their systolic blood pressure low? Is their heart rate greater than 120? Do they have a positive fast? And for each of these, your increased risk of uh, needing a massive transfusion based on these patients receiving 10 units of blood in 24 hours. So it's a predictive of the patients who are going to need a lot of blood because we know that if you need a lot of blood, then massive transfusion with products and platelets is very helpful. If you only needed one unit of blood, then giving FFP and platelets could be harmful. So you're really trying to predict who's going to need a bunch of blood. And this score is predictive. If you get two of these criteria, then uh, the articles would say get a massive transfusion activation. If you get three or four, then it gets more definitive. And generally, I like to see the three or four on this score. I don't use this much anymore, though, because what's come out very recently, and the, some of the articles were published in the past few months, is something called the critical administration threshold, which is you can give one unit of blood, no problem. You get two units of blood, okay, we'll hold off. As soon as you're ready to hang the third unit, 
patients should get massive transfusion activated. Well, that's kind of ED friendly because you burn through your first two units of blood, you're thinking about hanging the third, activate massive transfusion, give them the platelets, give them some FFP and catch up, try to get as close to one-to-one -one as possible, and you're in good shape. So the critical administration threshold, the CAT, is another ED-friendly way of knowing who needs massive transfusion. And I'll have all these slides for you. You don't have to copy down the references right now. I prefer to use something called the LLS score, and we derive this from our own patient population. Um, I actually had it put on uh, MDCalc, and there it is. So this actually turns out to be pretty good. And you know it. I mean, this is what we do. This patient looks really bad. Let's activate massive transfusion. That, that's just fine. All right. TXA, transgamic acid. Um, for some reason, there's like a ton of doubters in the American trauma world. Everyone else in the world has said this is absolutely life-saving. Um, I'm not sure what's up with the Americans. If you want to hear an amazing lecture on TXA, uh, Karen Broey, one of the most famous trauma surgeons in the world, uh, did a scathing uh, review of the arguments of the TXA doubters and I think knocked them all down. You can find that as the most recent post on the MCRIT site. Uh, amazingly good lecture, like classic British sarcasm. Um, I, I think most of us would be giving TXA to any sick trauma patient. Uh, the original criteria from the CRASH-2 trial, which is the trial that first established this, said any patient you think is going to need blood should get TXA. I find that to be too sensitive. And that's maybe why some of the doubters like look at the literature and say, oh, I'm not sure of the treatment effect here. Um, I do it a little differently. When I'm giving the first unit of blood to a sick trauma patient, I give them TXA, transgamic acid, antifibrinolytic. Keeps them from breaking down the clots they're forming, which is what happens to sick trauma patients. And I think that just really like, narrows down the spectrum of patients I'm giving it. So it's not like, hey, maybe this patient will need blood, I'll give TXA. No, it's I'm actually giving my first unit of blood to a sick trauma patient, so I'm going to give TXA. And that's how we're doing it. What you're going to see emerging in the literature, it's not quite there yet, I think it will, is early cryoprecipitate to actually give these patients back fibrinogen, which is what you lose and have depletion of in the initial portions of the trauma. And therefore, you can't form a clot very well without fibrinogen. That's what interlinks all of the clotting factors. So early cryo probably will become something we do, but right now the literature is not there yet. Another area the literature is emerging in is actually guiding our trauma resuscitation with real-time markers of the patient's ability to form a clot. So ROTEM, or TEG, makes a picture of the patient's clot in real time. It's like a little cup, you put some blood in, and as the cup spins, a graphical representation of the clot forms, and you can just look at the picture and know, is this patient clotting properly? This is like a nice, fat picture. This thins out and becomes like a pencil shape when the patient's not making a clot, and then you say, huh, we're probably not caught up in these patients' clotting factors in this patient's platelets. On the other hand, if it looks nice and fat, you say they're doing okay. And it's actually guiding your resuscitation. It's been demonstrated in a couple studies now to markedly reduce the number of blood products the patient needs to get the exact same clotting potential. Now, no one's done the mortality study yet, which is why mass adoption has not happened. So this is still on the fringe. But I guarantee you, 
10 years from now when I'm giving this lecture, all of us who are at trauma centers will be using this therapy. And then the other thing you're going to start to see is the rise of the concentrates. Instead of giving cryoprecipitate, we're going to be giving fibrinogen concentrate. They're already doing this in Europe and Canada. Instead of giving FFP, we're going to be giving some of the factor-laden concentrates, like prothrombin complex concentrate. How many folks have uh, factor nine, which I have to unfortunately say the brand name because you'll never recognize it. I think. How many folks have Kcentra? Yeah. I think in the next three or four years, you're going to be giving that to your trauma patients, especially in the community shops where they don't have thought FFP, but they do have Kcentra. Kcentra is packing in eight units of FFP in something you can give over the course of two minutes. And then when you give Kcentra, you can give crystalloid because crystalloid plus Kcentra equals essentially FFP. So I think that's going to be the way for patients that are going to get shipped to a major trauma center is the community place will give two, four units of PRBC, give Kcentra, and then ship them. And then when they get to the major trauma center, all of a sudden, they're in a lot better shape than when they had no clotting factors. So don't do it yet, but I think you probably will be doing it in the next couple of years. All right. I already told you about the fluid choice in a sick trauma patient. Any fluid you give these patients needs to be warm, needs to be given under pressure, and it needs to contain either clotting factors or oxygen. So it needs to be PRVCs, FFP, or platelets. Those are the fluids you give trauma patients. The fluids you do not give trauma patients are things that bring nothing to the table, like crystalloid, which makes us feel better because maybe we get a temporary spike in blood pressure, but makes the patient much worse because it dilutes out the existing clotting factors that are already there. And raising that blood pressure has not done anything good for that patient until they get to the real, real low blood pressures. Now, if you just feel the need to give something and you're giving blood products, maybe you should be giving some calcium. Now, PRBCs are no longer packed in citrate, so they don't chelate the patient's calcium. But plasma and platelets still are. And if you give a massive transfusion, the patient will become hypocalcemic. They will not have good inotropy. They will not have good vasoconstriction. And they will get hypotensive. So my rule of thumb is every four units of plasma, I give an amp of calcium chloride, preferably through a central line, but it can be through a big antecubital vessel that you trust. So, and the nice thing is if you give the calcium in the same IV as the, that's going with the rapid transfusion or with the pressure bag, and their arm has not exploded, generally that's a trustworthy IV. Because if you put fluid under 300 millimeters mercury and the vessel still looks nice, proximal to the IV, that's the one I want to stop those fluids for a second, push my calcium in, because that's a patent vessel. So one amp calcium chloride for every four units FFP, assuming you're doing one-to-one. -one. If you're not, then give it for every four units of PRBC, and you'll be in good shape. All right, so this patient... We gave our initial stuff we had in the room. We had two units of PRBCs, two units of FFP, and he's 90 over 50. All right, we're feeling a little bit better about him for the moment, right? That's a reasonable blood pressure. I'll take that. So now we want to take this patient's airway because we didn't want to do it when he's 50 over 30. That would be bad. He's going to have a precipitous drop in his blood pressure. We've gotten the blood pressure up a little bit. Let's intubate him now. All right. The way I'm going to intubate these patients with the med choices is big, big dose of rock. Sucks is okay, too. I like rock, but big dose. 
because their low cardiac output from their hemorrhagic shock is going to make these meds take longer to get to the motor end plates. And you have, I'm sure, witnessed this if you've been out for any period of time. Give the patient the 1.5 milligram per kilogram of sucks, and you wait 45 seconds, and they're still moving around. And you wait a little longer, and they're still moving around. You ask the nurse, did you give the actual med? And she shows you the vial. And the patient's still moving around. You're like, give another dose. And then finally, as they're drawing that up, like two and a half minutes after you gave the med, the patient stops moving. It wasn't that they gave the wrong med. It's that it takes a lot longer in a shock patient for those meds to actually work. The way to fix that problem is to give a big slug. So I always give two milligrams per kilogram of sucks. Or for rock, we've been quoting 1.6, 1.8 milligrams per kilogram. I don't even bother anymore. I just say give two milligrams per kilogram of rock. There's no way to overdose on these. They just stay paralyzed longer. I'm okay with that. So give big doses of paralytic, but give small doses of your induction agent. I have a whole lecture on why I like ketamine, why I don't necessarily like Atomidate. I'm not going to go through that. You can find it on the MCRIT site. Whatever you give, give a smaller dose than you're used to. So I'm going to give this guy 0.5 milligrams per kilogram of ketamine, and I'm going to give him 1.8 milligrams per kilogram of rock. So hypotensive intubation meds, high-dose rock, low-dose ketamine. All right, we got the guy tubed now. Now we want to start thinking about some monitoring. He's going to be with us for a little while. On this guy, we want to wait for interventional radiology. There's nothing else going on except pelvic bleeding. So I'd prefer him to get squirted rather than cut. So he's going to be with me for a little while. So I want to get some good monitoring in. And the best monitoring in a sick trauma patient is a femoral arterial line. Because this gives us beat-by-beat -beat monitoring of the results of our resuscitation. Some places you're not going to be able to do that. But if you have the capability, then consider this early in a sick trauma patient. And we're at a major trauma center. So we got more people than I know what to do with. So it's no problem for me to say, you put in a femoral art line because it's not affecting any other part of the resuscitation. So we could get it done. If you're a single doc, obviously it's not a good use of your time up front. Get everything else done. But you might have time while you're waiting for someone to come in to get this done if you have the ability to actually get it set up. But a femoral art line is much more accurate than the automated BP and more accurate than a radial arterial line. Um, and this has been shown in these studies. So consider this. I always use ultrasound to get it done on these patients because generally it's a small target. I'm not going blind. And then here's a little subtlety. The femoral arterial line you place, you want to be in the common femoral artery, not the superficial femoral artery. Right? So because the femoral artery, it splits pretty much past the umbilical ligament, it goes from being one vessel to two, the superficial femoral and the profundus femoral. For reasons I'm going to tell you about in five minutes, you really, really want to get this femart line in the common femoral. Now, how do you do that? You stick on the ultrasound, you're going to see two pulsating things right here, and then just move up until it becomes one, move up a little bit higher so that your needle will actually hit where it's one, and that's the common femoral. And that's important for reasons I'm going to show you in just a bit. But everyone will love you if you put in a common femoral artery art line. And yes, it's okay in a pelvic trauma patient. Some of the uh, less savvy trauma surgeons will tell you, you can't do that. You absolutely can. At that point, it's an intraperitoneal vessel. It's putting things that it's being monitored up. It's not infusing into the femoral vein. And I think it is a bad idea to put a femoral vein central line 
in a horrible pelvic trauma patient. You don't know where those vessels are going. But putting a monitoring line in the femoral artery above the pelvis is absolutely fine. So do not let them tell you that. There's no problem putting an art line in a pelvic trauma patient. All right, so you get the art line in, and the map is 48. Is that good? Is that bad? Well, we need a goal. We need to know where we want these patients. And the concept of permissive hypotension has emerged in the trauma literature. It's pretty definitive in the sick penetrating trauma patient. Most of us are using it in the sick blunt trauma patient as well. But I don't like the term. The term does not make sense because it makes us feel like we're doing something really odd. We're letting the patient get hypotensive. We're permitting them to get hypotensive. But no, we're not, actually. What we're looking for is the minimal level of normal tension. And when you say it that way, then this becomes a lot less scary, right? So any sick, critically ill patient, what kind of blood pressure do we look for, right? What blood pressure do you want in your septic patient? For me, it's a map of 65. When I see that, I say, great. That's what I'm looking for in the trauma patient, too. I just want the minimal level of normal tension. But the thing to understand is that the BP is not really the answer. We're using it as surrogate for what we really care about, which is perfusion, right? We want to have patients not at 140 over 90, because that's going to increase their bleeding, but by the same token, we don't want them super low where they're not perfusing. Because the thing is, what we found in the coagulopathy of trauma is that the major thing that begets it is shock. It's poor perfusion to the tissues. And when the tissues are being poorly perfused, all sorts of ill humors get released by the, by the cells that beget this patient's bleeding. And so the two things that are the strongest correlators of the patient being coagulopathic is tissue trauma, so setting the cells up for badness, and then not perfusing those cells. So if we could keep perfusion but also keep the patient from not increasing their bleeding, that would be great. But how do we know if the patient's perfusing? You see, because all of these patients with the MAP of 65 have different levels of perfusion. There's your normal patient, MAP of 65, normal blood vasculature. There's the septic patient I talked about, MAP of 65. They're massively vasodilated. They're getting a ton of perfusion at a MAP of 65. Here's the vasoconstricted trauma patient. That MAP of 65 and that guy is bad. Those tissues are not being perfused. The way they got a MAP of 65 is massive epinephrine and norepinephrine, and their tissue is not being perfused. Their extremities ice cold. I don't want that. I don't want a MAP of 65 like that. I want a MAP of 65 like this, with a reasonable vasculature size so that it's a MAP of 65, not increasing the bleeding, but still perfusing the tissues and not begetting the uh, patient's shock. So finding out which of these two is a problem. I'll tell you how I make that happen in a sec, to know I'm getting this and not this. What number? It's probably going to be 50 very soon. Recent literature has shown that a map of 50 probably is enough for these patients, and that's probably what we're going to be doing. It was 50 versus 65. But that's not definitive yet, so I'm going to still say 65. But I want a 65 and perfusion. So if they get a map of less than 65, I give them more of that fluid of trauma. I give them more blood, more FFP. If they get greater than 65, now I start thinking maybe I could put some degree of anesthesia on this patient who has gotten rock and actually 
eat away at their adrenals that may be making them profoundly vasoconstricted. And this is what they call earning the anesthetic. So if the patient gets a spike in BP, you give them a tiny, tiny, tiny dose of something that's going to be an anesthetic. But you want something that has no intrinsic vasodilatory properties, and you want something that's going to take care of pain. So for me, I'm just going to give them a tiny dose of fentanyl. So if their MAP spikes above 65, and I'm not talking 66, I'm talking the, these classic swings you're going to see in the trauma patient. They had a MAP of 50, you gave them a couple units, and now their MAP is 120. What I'm going to give these patients is 25, 50, 100 of fentanyl and see what it does to them. If it does nothing, now I know I might be able to give them a tiny bit more of the fentanyl. If it drops their BP to 50, I know this is a patient who got up to that 140 solely by the fact that their vessels are the signs of pins, and what I'm going to give them is more resuscitation. Now, this has been demonstrated to be safe in a study done in the shock trauma center. It has not been demonstrated to have any mortality benefit because the study numbers were too small. So if you choose not to do this, you're fine. But this is how we play it at my trauma centers, is we try to hover right around that 65. If they drop down, we give them more resuscitation. If they spike up high, then they'll get a little bit of anesthetic. They've earned a little bit of their anesthetic. If eventually you get a milligram of fentanyl in, you know that MAP of 65 is going to give you a warm, perfusing patient, and you know their tissues are going to be getting what they need to avoid the coagulopathy of trauma. Now, what if the patient has a head injury? A lot of the trauma docs would tell you it's still the same MAP goal, still that MAP of 65, but that's scary because if the patient has intracranial pressure increases, we'd actually like, based on some other literature in the neurotrauma world, to raise our MAP goals. Wouldn't it be great, though, if we had a way of knowing which patients had increased ICP? And we do. We have a bedside test for increased ICP. How many folks are using ocular ultrasound for their trauma patients? Yeah, just like three. This is an easy test to do. You find the eye, which is a fluid-filled structure, so it's the easiest ultrasound thing in the world, and you just find the optic nerve sheet behind it. I know this isn't projecting well, but you'll have the slides. You'll be able to see it. If you drop a caliper three millimeters down and measure the optic nerve sheath at that level, if it's tiny, they don't have increased ICP. If it's greater than six, they do have increased ICP. And then you can decide to uh, change your, uh, your blood pressure goals based on that. This takes five seconds to do. I have an entire video demonstrating it along with all the literature on the MCRIT site, and I'm going to give you the, the link to that at the end where you're going to get directly to this. So if you want to learn to do this, I have a whole bunch of tutorials to make it happen. But this is a great test on that drunk who comes in on Friday night and they're a little bit altered. Is it because of the alcohol? Is it because they have a bad head injury? Do I have to stop everything and rush this guy to CT or not? All right, I'll put on the probe. If their ocular nerve is 6.2 millimeters, I am stopping everything and getting this guy to CT. If it's not, it doesn't mean he doesn't have a head injury. He still absolutely needs the CT, but maybe I can make that happen just by ordering it and letting him go when the time comes. So ocular ultrasound is a bedside test for ICP elevations. All right. So this guy has now gotten six units of PRBC, four of FFP, a pack of platelets, and a pack of cryo. Where should we go with them now? Well, I've already told you. You know, it would be great if we could get the interventional radiologist in there and squirt this guy's pelvis. But if he becomes really unstable, then he might need to go immediately to the operating room. And this decision point of OR, IR, OR, IR has been a constant bugaboo for us in, in major trauma centers. Because, you know, if you make the wrong choice, 
if you missed an injury that was uh, a surgical injury, then you're in the IR suite, you're kind of hosed. And if you do go to the OR, and then just at that moment the IR guys arrive, and they have nothing to do now, they're up in the operating room, then that was a wasted opportunity. We shouldn't have to make this choice. This is a silly decision point. Because what we should have is something like a raptor suite. I just love that term. It's named so well, the raptor suite. The raptor suite is resuscitation with angiography, percutaneous techniques, and operative repair in one place. And this is what they call it in Canada. In the U.S., or at the shock trauma center, we call it a hybrid OR. This is an operating room that has full capabilities to do angiography. And it makes total sense because it means everything could be done in one place. The patient could be getting their craniectomy at the same time the angio guys are squirting the pelvis. They be, could be getting their intraperitoneal cut, but then just at that moment when they're about to put the scalpel down, the IR you guys get there, no problem. Go for the IR, let's see what you could do. If you fail, we're right there with the scalpel. It makes so much sense. Every major trauma center, if they don't already, will have one of these. And then you don't have to make a decision. Where are you gonna send them? Send them to the Raptor suite with a bad pelvic injury. If you put one of these portable CT scans that they're happy to show you down in the exhibit hall, then you don't even have to stop at CT to do the one thing sometimes we like to do on these sick blood trauma patients, which is make sure they don't have a devastating head injury probably going to the OR, but that adds 20 minutes to the time until the patient gets definitive management. So wouldn't it be better to just take them up to the Raptor suite and get their head CT while they're getting prepped for their IR? So this could all happen, and this makes total sense. All right, so Raptor. We should not have to choose between IR and OR. Now, as we're getting this guy packaged up to go to the Raptor suite, we look up again at the art line, BP's 40 over 20. All right, well, that's not a safe transport anymore. And you give a ton of products that you had left over because you were going to take them with you to the Raptor suite, and the patient's blood pressure only comes up to 60 over 40. That's not good. Wouldn't it be great if we had a bedside intervention we could do to actually temporize this guy so we could get up to the suite safely? The answer is we do. We have Reboa. Reboa is resuscitative endovascular balloon occlusion of the aorta. And this is a technique that's decades old. They've been doing this for AAAs forever. But the trauma folks have gotten their hands on it. Great folks like Megan Brenner have been doing this for patients with exsanguinating trauma, either from the pelvis or the intraperitoneal cavity. Essentially, what you're going to do is you're going to get an art line. This is why it was so important to get that common femoral art line, because it could be immediately transitioned to therapies like Reboa. You put you transition that art line to a bigger sheath. These days it's gonna be a seven French sheath, very reasonable, not something crazy. And you just float up a balloon catheter either to right above the umbilicus for pelvic trauma or just under the diaphragm for patients with intraperitoneal bleeding. And all of a sudden you inflate a balloon and stop the arterial flow to whatever's bleeding. Now, it used to be complicated. It used to be a wire, a huge introducer, a balloon. Now, they just had FDA approval, prior medical, for an ED-friendly Reboa balloon. No wire, small sheath. You float it up by measuring it against the patient's body, and you inflate the balloon. Easier than placing a transvenous pacemaker, by far. Well within the capabilities of emergency medicine. 
So now we have the capability to temporize these patients from exsanguinating pelvic trauma or exsanguinating intraperitoneal trauma. This is what the old setup looked like, uh, big introducer, wire, everything taped. The new one, you can see it downstairs, and again, I take money from none of these companies. Just go to the prior medical booth and look at this thing. It is really easy. Here's what the balloon looks like inflated. This is zone three for pelvic trauma. This is what we'd float in the patient we've talked about in this case. And all of a sudden, the arterial supply cut off from the proximal source. They're still going to back bleed. They're still going to have venous bleeding. But you've significantly decreased the pumping force on those vessels. So Reboa, vascular control without the big cut. Lead article, Journal of Trauma, two months ago was the, a demonstration that this does work. We need some randomized controlled trials. But the experience, the series, all point to this being a nice thing. So after the Reboa balloon goes up, BP 120 over 80. We give them a little bit more fentanyl. We take them to the Raptor suite for angiography. If you want to hear more about all this, hear more about trauma issues, mcrit.org, free, no manufacturer support. If you have any questions, tweet me on mcrit. All of the slides and links to everything I talked about today can be found at mcrit.org slash ASEP. So to bring it all home, lower normal heart rate should not reassure you on a sick trauma patient. Don't believe the first few BPs, and make sure your rep time is something reasonable, like two minutes, not 60 minutes. Bind the pelvis early on blunt trauma patients who are unstable. When the fast really matters, put them in Trendelenburg and find the liver tip. If you're going to intubate a hypotensive trauma patient, high-dose paralytic, low-dose ketamine. You can do ocular ultrasound and know if the patient has elevated ICP at the bedside. Raptor suite. We shouldn't have to choose IR, OR, and potentially get it wrong. It should be one choice, one place to do everything. And then Reboa, vascular control without the big cut. You do not need to do thoracotomies on these patients to get control of the aorta. So what happened to our patient? Well, he made it through. There you go. Ready to go again. So I'll leave you with the thought, you got to love trauma, and thank you for your attention. <laughs>